0: Welcome to the Integral Health Resources podcast. This is Bob. Um, I'm still in the thick of things uh, this semester, preparing for my um, my comps for my counseling degree and doing my internship at a career counseling center, and uh, I'm enjoying that a lot. And so uh, I rarely have time to, you know, to even do anything for this podcast. And when I do, it's going to have to be stuff that I'm sort of experiencing in in my program because I just didn't have time to research anything else but something uh, this past week that came up that was interesting to me that I didn't get a chance to discuss in class because we just didn't have time was um, this idea that in counseling um, we have a wellness model of uh, psychological health basically It's in, you know, contra distinction to the medical model that's embraced by some other mental health professionals like psychiatry, most notably, because psychiatrists are medical doctors and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is really coming from the perspective of uh, psychological disorders and diagnosing disorders, whereas counselors come at it from more of a strength-based perspective. And um, there's a sense that uh, people are, you know, inherently healthy and functioning okay as long as they have the requisite skills and uh, coping skills and they're able to deal with their environment. So, you know, we're, as counselors, we're trying to build up those skills and, help them navigate their environment, or even do advocacy to improve their situation or their access to social services. So that's a difference in perspective. Um, And it's a little oversimplified because there are tons of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists that have a wellness perspective and a, a very holistic, integrative sense of how they work with clients. And there are plenty of counselors that. Um, fall right into the medical model and uh basically you know talk talk to their clients as if you know they have a chemical imbalance or you know they use medical model terminology in ways that may seem to conflict with uh with the wellness model so in our textbook you know it's basically saying that as Counselors, We have to f- basically figure out how to reconcile our wellness orientation with the medical model of diagnosis, uh, because when we go out there and practice, we're going to be faced with having to work within a system that um, is really tied into the medical model, at least many of us will if we're working in community mental health agencies and this has been a huge issue for me. I've really sort of second-guessed myself several times as I was even getting this master's degree because I I just wanted to avoid being placed in these professional dilemmas where you know, I have my own philosophy and uh you know, theoretical orientation but I'm going to be in some work setting where I have to constantly go against that and you know the dissonance of that is just gonna you know drive me out of the field and I have some personal experience with this working in a psychiatric hospital and it was in a an addictions unit working with adolescents and there was a lot of great uh people I mean certainly everyone there had great intentions and there were some real masterful therapists even the best therapist there I think I disagreed with um theoretically on a few things um addiction is one of those areas where um, there's a, so many different philosophies you can have in the, in the sort of mainstream philosophy, you know, especially if you embrace sort of a 12-step model that once an addict, always an addict, and addiction is a disease, and that, you know, you can never really go from having a drug problem to using moderately. All these things are are tied into you know, a very standard way of looking at things in addiction treatment. So of course, while I was there, I would be sitting on the sidelines watching other therapists do psychoeducational groups and family sessions and, and talk be, you know, talking to clients and they'd be presenting people with information about the nature of addiction that I just fundamentally disagreed with. I just thought was, you know, just wrong. Um, And from my perspective, you know, the 12-step model viewing addiction as a disease has serious downsides. First of all, I mean, I just don't think it's accurate, but uh, I think it can be harmful in a lot of cases, setting up this sort of expectation that, uh, you know, people, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy for relapse. If you think, oh, geez, if, you know, if I start relapsing, it's going to trigger this disease process. And, and, And there is research out there, sort of, uh, backing up my perspective, but it also just, you know, I just sort of came across gradually harm reduction approaches. And, um, I've talked about, uh, my philosophy of addictions counseling and other podcasts, but that's just one example of, you know, you work in a setting and you're, and at that time we were working under the, the DSM four where it was imperative that the clients we worked with had to have a diagnosis of either substance dependence or substance abuse, I believe substance dependence was the was the diagnosis that they they needed to actually be in our residential uh, program, and so you'd be in this position where even if a a kid were to come in and you you didn't think that they actually met the criteria for substance dependence. There would be, and you know, of course, I was not in a position to be actually giving a diagnosis at that point in my career. But what I saw was uh, teenagers getting this getting this diagnosis, even though they didn't meet the criteria, even when they obviously didn't meet the criteria, because I mean, the rationale was if you didn't give them the diagnosis, they couldn't get the services, and they need help. So you're just playing this sort of diagnosis game to make sure the kid can get in there and get some help. So if they were on the edge or they didn't quite meet the criteria, you wanted to give them the diagnosis so they could actually get in there and have their insurance company pay for it and get the help. So there was this basically this argument that if you didn't if you didn't sort of tweak with the criteria a little bit, then you're sending the kid back out in the street and then you have that ethical dilemma. So that particular process is called upcoding. That's when someone doesn't meet the criteria for a particular diagnosis, but a diagnostician or a clinician will give the diagnosis so that that person can receive services and be reimbursed. It's also important to note that the the clinician himself will get you know, paid, <laughs> that's, that's one of the big problems here, or the hospital or the facility, you know, you're not going to get paid unless you have, you know, all the beds full. And so then there's that uh, incentive to upcode, so that uh, you make sure that, you know, that you're able to pay all the bills and pay all your staff. So this is a really serious issue in, in, in my mind. And then later, you know, even in my my training now getting my master's degree i've seen the same process play out in certain settings and um just talking to peers who are out there doing their internships that there is this same thing going on everywhere especially when you're dealing with managed care companies that are 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 handling the you know the insurance so that clients will come in and you'll know right away that, you know, you're not going to be able to make any money and bill for services unless they have a diagnosis. And they're not going to be able to get services unless they have a diagnosis. So then you'll have people come in. They don't quite meet the criteria. And there's this systemic pressure because the incentives are aligned uh, to make upcoding coding happen. And uh, what I found when I was thinking about these issues and researching a little bit is there has been some research on this and I'll, I'll post a link to there's some uh, some of this research is listed in my textbook but there's a presentation I found online that went in, in a little more depth and I'll post a link on on the uh, the blog post that links to this podcast if you want to check out some of that but um, some some research was done and they basically surveyed People that were dealing with managed care you know mental health practitioners dealing with managed care organizations and 44 percent of the study participants reported that they had changed or said they would change a client's diagnosis so that the clients managed care organization would reimburse their services that's 44 percent That's almost half another 26 percent said that they were torn between changing the diagnosis in order to continue treatment, but that they utilize some other strategy. And they didn't they didn't specify what that was. So to my thinking, if forty-four people are admitting to doing it or that they would do it, knowing that, you know, if they took any ethics class, knowing that this is, constitutes fraud and that it would be technically illegal um, and unethical to give a false diagnosis, so forty-four percent admit to that you got to think the number is is even higher. So I I would go out on a limb and say that most mental health professionals that deal with managed care organizations are engaging in some form of uh, deceitful diagnosis, either upcoding, like I just mentioned, or some even, there's some downcoding that happens. You would downcode give a lesser diagnosis uh, for a couple of reasons. You might think as the counselor, you don't want to stigmatize your client with a more severe diagnosis. So you give them a diagnosis like adjustment disorder that uh, maybe that's the, the mildest diagnosis that gets covered by insurance. And so that you know, you're you able to see the client and give them the services, but not give them a, a, a diagnosis that has a, a major stigma. So that's one reason to downcode another reason would be because some some diagnosis, even though maybe they're more severe, they might just not specifically be covered by a given insurance plan, and so maybe they only cover anxiety or depression, and your client really has some other more narrow diagnosis, and you sort of downcode them to anxiety or depression even though they don't fit the criteria, just so you can, you know, again, you're telling yourself that it's so they can have the services, but you know, a big part of it is so that you can get paid. And I I just think when you have incentives aligned or misaligned in this case, human beings are going to falter every time. And I think that's one of the big problems with the DSM to begin with, the whole process by which it was created. You had huge percentages of the people that were coming up with the criteria that were uh getting money in one form or another from pharmaceutical industry uh from somebody in the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry stands to make you know billions of dollars based on you know how the criteria are set up i mean if if the diagnostic criteria are loosened up just slightly, then that could include, you know, hundreds of thousands of more potential customers that end up getting prescribed that medication. So there's if the incentives are lined up that way, you're going to have uh, a corrupt system. And the DSM, there's plenty of documentation out there that shows that uh, there's conflicts of interest everywhere. The people that were deciding on the DSM criteria, the vast majority of them were bankrolled at least in part by the pharmaceutical industry, so that you know, and even some of the the folks when they were challenged on that would just sort of laugh it off and insist that they could somehow, you know, put that aside and uh, make objective decisions on this. But that's just just not the way human beings work. So, so the entire DSM system uh, is sort of corrupted by this this poor incentive setup. But then, yeah, so when you're, when you're a mental health practitioner and you're in this position, it just seems uh, hopeless to think that, that people are going to not be influenced in how they diagnose. And so, again, some research backs this up. So we have the, the study uh, done by Danziger and Welfel that showed that 44% of people reported changing the diagnosis or said that they would change it. And then there's some other very interesting studies. So another study involves uh, vignettes. So there's a few studies that were about this process of upcoding. And they would give different vignettes to a psychologist. And one vignette uh, would be assigned to um, some sort of... uh, payment plan. One would be, you know, listed as someone paying out of pocket, and the other one would be a managed care patient. They wanted to see if just simply their payment status was going to influence the diagnosis, and what they found was uh, that it definitely did. So in one study, you know, they they had a vignette that a, a patient had uh, you know, symptoms that could be diagnosed with general anxiety disorder. And another patient that was had symptoms of depression, but you know, was on just on the borderline for a diagnosis. And uh, that depressed client was three times more likely to be diagnosed with depression if they had a managed care plan listed as their payment method as opposed to out of pocket. The anxious client was 10 times more likely to be diagnosed when they had a managed care plan attached to their vignette. So that's that's pretty amazing. Um, another study was done, very similar setup, except it was uh, either social phobia or ADHD. And they found that uh, 92.2% of the social phobia clients were diagnosed when they had managed care insurer, whereas only 698 diagnosed when uh, it was an out-of-pocket situation and the adhd case is very similar the adhd client in the vignette was diagnosed 51 percent of the time when a managed care plan was was attached to the vignette only 27.1 when they were paying out of pocket so i mean you could see that it's just simply you know when getting paid depends on the diagnosis, the diagnosis changes. If someone's paying out-of-pocket and it doesn't matter whether they're diagnosed or not, they're gonna get the services and you're gonna get paid, then uh, diagnosis happens a lot less because you have to presume that in those cases they're actually applying the criteria properly. One other study, um, again I'll link to all these, had vignettes that were distributed where the clients were purposely below diagnosable levels. So they wrote the vignette so that no one should diagnose them with anything. And uh, they found that, though, if you put the managed care tag on the vignette, those clients were were three times more likely to be assigned a diagnosis than if if it was said that they were paying out of pocket. And so and then when they interviewed i guess some of the psychologists they they actually said that they they upcoded on purpose because you know it was needed for insurance purposes and they they thought the client could benefit from services so you can see that this is just uh, an absolutely massive problem and i'm not sure what the solution is um you know who would you write the letter to i mean is it now that we have the affordable care act is that is somehow that changing i've heard that uh preventative care is looked at a little bit differently or is it just the insurance companies themselves that would have to change their policies either way i guess uh i think more attention needs to be paid to this because it's um it's going to be hard to legitimize yourself as a profession when it's sort of this dirty little secret and it's sort of an open secret that, you know, everybody's just misdiagnosing for one reason or another, whether it's to gain uh, profit in some way or whether it's for the good of the client. But either way, it doesn't make sense to have the system set up that way. So hopefully we'll get to a point... Um, either where they broaden, you know, what they're going to cover. So you don't, you know, there's a lot of diagnoses in the DSM, like so-called V codes, or I believe they call them Z codes now in the DSM-5, where they're not, you know, criteria-based disorders where you have to meet a big set of criteria. It could just be something like parent-child problem. You're just noting that this is the reason that, you know, the client came in and this is what you're seeing them for. And it's just basic common sense problem of living stuff. And of course, most insurance companies aren't going to bill for that. So if you're working, say, in a school and a kid comes in and they just, you know, they don't have, they wouldn't tick off all the criteria for major depressive disorder or or really any disorder in the DSM, but they're clearly struggling with uh, some stuff at home and they might have some trouble in school and you think they could benefit from a few counseling sessions, then it'd be great if you could just assign the, the Z code and then work with them and that they, you know, they could be reimbursed for this, but we're definitely not there yet. So that's, uh, you know, and, and again, you could just question the entire diagnostic system, um, and the medical model behind it. And when you're a counselor, I mean, it's tough because if you're, if your livelihood depends on, assigning diagnoses in that first session so that you can justify treatment and that uh you get paid and the client can actually get services it's just you know i, I don't i don't really have a good answer for it and in fact it's just something i want to avoid altogether this is why, one of the reasons why i don't want to work in a community mental health setting once i graduate i would much rather work as a school counselor where you're not really in the business of giving diagnoses, uh, you, you would refer out. You know, if a client had that severe of an issue, but you're able to go and work with kids and do your thing without having to uh, sort of get involved with this medical model, really at all. Even though you know somebody's, you know, somebody's, you know, some other professionals given the ADHD diagnosis and doing this and that, at least you don't have to dirty your hands with it. And So I don't know, it, it could be a cop-out, but it's something that I, I just don't want to deal with. Um, the ethical dilemmas that arise from having to work within that system. And it's also one of the reasons I'm really enjoying career counseling this semester, because it's a very strength-based thing. A student comes in, they they need help figuring out their major or or what career they want, and, you know, you're not getting into a disorder diagnosis at all. It just doesn't come up. Um, You know, maybe if these students did have some sort of major problem, they'd probably be referred to, you know, the counseling center where they work with that sort of thing, but they're seeing you specifically for career issues, and it's very unlikely that you're going to be treating a disorder per se. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I just, this part of my theoretical orientation. I definitely embrace that wellness model. I'm not, I don't want to treat disorders. It just is a different mindset. Um, And I would rather just be in the role of support person, educator, somebody that's promoting the, you know potential and strengths of someone and uh you know i'll be able to do that there are plenty of settings that, that i can do that but we'll see once i graduate i may uh once again be faced with um colliding with this system and hopefully i have the tools now to to deal with it a little bit better but it it's definitely a big problem and one of the more interesting things that came up this week for me so that's all i have for now uh, again, I will post the links to the research on this uh, if anybody's interested in wrapping their head around this problem. If you have any feedback, you can contact me at bob at integralhealthresources.com, or you could comment on the blog, or you could uh, contact me on Twitter, which is integral underscore health, at integral underscore health, I'm sorry. And yeah, so until then, be well, and I'll uh, touch base again in a couple weeks.